Good day. Welcome to the Corey Morgan Show. I am Corey Morgan. This is my weekly show with the Western Standard going out to a number of channels out there. Get my opinion on things, run through some news items, maybe a little ranting and raving. And of course, I always have some fantastic guests coming on. So uh, yeah, I've got a good guest coming on today as usual. Her name is Gabrielle Bauer and she's from uh, Toronto. She's a health and medical writer, and she put out a book that was published by the Brownstone Institute called Blind Sight is 2020. So she's been looking back on the pandemic policies, uh, social aspects to it, and well, what worked, if anything, and what failed, and there's plenty of that. So, I mean, you know, we, we can't let that go too far in the rear of the mirror. We got to examine what happened and why there. So, uh, Let's get on to other things, local things. Of course, the election finally ended in Alberta. What a long, ugly, nasty campaign that was. In the end, we, we do have a UCP government. Danielle Smith pulled it off, but I got stuck with an NDP MLA. Shamefully, in my rural riding, I have an NDP MLA. I'm quite bummed about it, but whatever. I guess it could have been worse. We could have had a whole whack more of them. Good to see you all checking in on the comment scroll, guys. Stuart, Shirley, Jason, all the rest of you. I appreciate it. Use the comment scroll if you're watching this live. Send questions my way, the guests' way, and, uh, you know, converse with each other. Just keep things civil. We can fight on Twitter if we want. We don't need to do it in this comment scroll. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit about that election. Offer my advice, and I'm sure she's getting it from all directions. My advice, though, to Premier Danielle Smith. So, Danielle Smith, I mean, she's gone against all conventional wisdom and political advice. She's defied and ignored polls, pundits, and academics that all predicted her political demise and in dismissing those naysayers she's found herself elected as Alberta's premier with a majority government at her disposal albeit a reduced one. Now the night of the election click Daniel Smith invoked the late Ralph Klein in referencing what was called his miracle on the prairie and she wasn't drawing an unfair parallel. The similarities between the 1993 general election won by Klein and the 2023 election in Alberta are, are remarkable when you look at them. When Klein took the reins of the Progressive Conservative Party in the early 1990s, their party was in serious trouble. It was polling down sometimes as low as 20% against Lawrence DeCore's liberals, and many were declaring the PCs as electorally dead in the water. The elites, of course, and the chattering classes dismissed Klein as an uneducated bumpkin who stumbled his way into the premiership and would become a little more than a footnote in political history. Voters, though, they felt otherwise and gave Ralph Klein a reduced majority government on June 15, 1993, the Alberta establishment, of course, they were aghast, but at least somewhat humbled. Now we come all the way up to 2022, and we've got the governing UCP, and they were polling as low as 22% under the leadership of Jason Kenney. That led to the end of Kenney, and among a number of things. And when Kenney was replaced by Danielle Smith, the usual establishment suspects were all but confident this would be the beginning of the end of the UCP's reign in government. There's no way a leader with such a controversial history as Smith could turn around the fortunes of a party in such trouble, right? Well, Smith proved her detractors wrong and pulled a reduced majority win from what was the most personal and negative provincial campaign in living memory. And while she may have fewer seats than the 1993 PCs did under Klein, she actually uh, has a larger segment of popular support. I mean, Ralph Klein won 44.5% support in 1993, Smith's UCP took 52.6% of the electorate. Her opponents can no longer claim she doesn't have a mandate from Albertans. Now, if Premier Smith wants to continue down a Klein-like path, she needs to take another one of his favorite sayings to heart. Don't blink. The election might be behind Smith right now, but her opponents are far from gone. Notley's remaining as the leader of the NDP for now, which ensures the negative tone of the opposition against Smith uh, is going to continue. Legacy media is as biased as ever against Smith, and they're going to pan every move she makes. Just the other morning, I listened to a local talk radio station begin its newscast saying, Notley's NDP wins the largest opposition ever. Since when is the second place celebrated in a two-way party system, you know, a two-party system? 
They won't even give Smith a win in headlines when she just had a literal win. I mean, you mentioned that the NDP won the largest opposition after you mentioned the UCP won a majority, but not in the media environment of today. Unions, academics, and media will all oppose Smith's every move, just as they did with Klein. And there's going to be people within Smith's own party. They're going to get nervous. And uh, as her opposition to her policy starts mounting, they're going to put pressure on her. She needs to ignore her opponents and reassure her allies. Most of all, though, or again, she can't blink. Klein was counseled to back down as he put Alberta's finances back in order. He was told by the experts he was moving too far, too fast. He was upsetting the apple cart, and surely he'd be punished at the polls. He didn't blink, though. And political pundits assured us he'd be punished dearly in the next election. Well, in 1997, Ralph Klein increased his majority with another 11 seats on top of that and took 51% of the popular vote. Ignore the experts. Don't blink. Smith has a mandate, and she needs to pursue it. She can't succumb to the temptation to pull the political reform band-aid off slowly through minor incremental policy changes. For one thing, her opponents are going to go wild no matter what she does, even if they're minor changes. So you got nothing to lose in going for the big ones. Secondly, that's how Jason Candy tried to govern, and look how well that turned out. Albertans are willing to embrace positive political changes, even if it comes to the health system and the, the pension plan. Smith needs to bring about all these reforms quickly and to offer no quarter to her opponents in her work. Changes need to be made in the first two years in power so the results can be measured in the second two years before she faces the electorate again. She can't let the civil servants, union heads, or even her own advisors slow roll her mandate. Hesitation will be her undoing. Premier Smith isn't showing any indications of being a shrinking violet in office. I don't expect her to tiptoe around with policy. I mean, Smith's historical biggest mistake ever, though, was to crumble under strong headwinds and led the disastrous floor crossing from the Wild Rose Party to the Progressive Conservatives with Under Prentice in 2014. The pressure got to her back then and she sought an escape hatch. Now, Daniel Smith has been given a second political life that nobody would have expected of her uh, for her after that catastrophic uh, lapse in judgment in 2014. She's clearly learned a lot since then. Let's hope, though, she's absorbed the most important lesson of all, especially when you're getting tired of swimming upstream. Don't blink. That's all I can offer for Premier Smith right now. I mean, like I said, she's getting advice all over the place from all sorts of quarters. But, uh, you know, stick to your plan. Don't uh, let them push you off it because you won't win. They, they, they just see the weakness. They'll smell the blood in the water, and they will keep coming after her. All right, let's see what else is going on in the news and check in with Dave Naylor, our news editor. Hey, Dave, how's it going? Uh, I don't know, Corey. I, I think I'm going to need your help in the next week. I think I'm suffering from PWS. PWS. Poll withdrawal syndrome. We used to get oh, four or five polls a day who was going to win the election, and now for two days we've had none. I can't, I can't deal with it, Corey. I mean, where's my polls? <laughs> Uh, anyways, thank goodness yeah, the election's over. Ones, yeah. Thank goodness the election's over. Uh, Newswise, busy morning, as always, uh, at the Western Standard. Uh, leading off this site right now is bad news for the, uh, for the oil patch. A uh, massive Norwegian oil company has uh, not pulled the plug, but has delayed the uh, massive uh, Bay du Nord project off the coast of Newfoundland uh, for at least three years. That's uh, a $16 billion project that is, is now on old, uh, Corey. Our education uh, columnist, uh, John Hilton O'Brien, has filed a piece on uh, the, the fact that to, even though the UCP has won, the parents still, parents still need to fight for uh, what's happening in the education system. I don't know about you, Corey, but when I was growing up, there was nothing I liked more than a, a Duke of Hazards episodes with the... Uh, you know, following the tales of Bo and Luke Duke and their very uh, uh, Daisy Duke short uh, uh, friend uh, Daisy. Uh, car chases and whatnot, they, they were all part of life in the Dukes of Hazards. And there was a real life one recently down in Georgia, which was caught on tape, which uh, some driver uh, flew off the back of a, uh, of a pickup truck and went hundreds of meters or hundreds of feet uh, in the air barrel rolling. So that's uh, a good fun to check out. Uh, our uh, education. Oh, and there's uh, Nico playing it, uh, playing it there for you now. Uh, what else do we have? Our uh, our real estate expert, Mike Thomas, has got a, a piece looking at the June 7th Bank of Canada interest rate. Interestingly, uh, the GDP that is 
higher than expected could cause the uh, the bank to raise the rate on uh, on June seventh. And we've got uh, also video of the uh, the dramatic incident yesterday uh, involving a uh, Chinese fighter jet which buzzed right in front of a uh, an American aircraft, and uh, that's up there for you to see. And uh, coming up in a few minutes, uh, Corey will have a story. We'll reveal uh, who becomes Hollywood's oldest dad lately, which Hollywood legend has just become a dad at 83 years old. Uh, we'll have that story up uh, in just a couple minutes. All right. Well, thank you for the updates, Dave. And uh, we're looking forward to the full story on the geriatric breeder there. Yeah. So, and he, you know, if, if he's doing it at 83, uh, you have any thoughts of maybe, uh, you know, getting back in the baby making game? No, I got neutered back when I was 27 and there's no reversing that for me, but uh, maybe some others might want to take up the challenge later on. There you go. All right. Thanks, Dave. We'll Thanks, talk Greg. after the show. That is our news director, Dave Naylor, again, covering everything from the important to uh, the fun and trivial, such as uh, celebrity childbirth and uh, Dukes of Hazard style crashes going on. But also, of course, we're covering the election, federal politics, provincial politics, like any good large news site. This is when I remind everybody, get on there and take out a subscription. That's how we stay independent. That's how we pay the bills. That's how, again, most important of all, we aren't beholden to the government for a nickel. We do not take any tax dollars. And that's thanks to you guys who have subscribed. $9.99 a month, $99 a year. You get full access, get beyond the paywall, and uh, see all of those news stories as they come out. But we've got a large news crew across the country here putting stuff out. I mean, it's one of the things that uh, uh, came out recently, you know, where, or as we saw during the election, Calgary has uh, next to nothing left with the Canada, with the Calgary Sun and the Calgary Herald for newspapers. These were the two heavyweights here. They were here, uh, you know, forever. They had uh, they couldn't file their stories until quite late because they don't have any copy editors apparently out this way. They, 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 they're down to putting out just about a flyer. I saw somebody on Twitter talking about that today too. Yesterday's Sun, a post-election Calgary Sun, it was like 24 pages long and had two ads. They're hurting. They're hurting really bad. And you know, I, I, I'm not um, celebrating. In the, you know, there's a lot of good jobs being lost. We got a lot of challenges to local coverage going on. Actually, we've got. Uh, you know, who is going to cover these things. The news is important, uh, but they've got to, they've got to change how they're doing things rather than trying to keep asking for more and more money to shore up what's a, a broken, obsolete system. You can't carry the weight of an old traditional style media outlet any longer. I mean, that's where the, why the standard's expanding as well as it is and other independent outlets because we started from scratch and we didn't have to try and carry all that weight and re reinvent the wheel. We're working with modern types of, of technology and layouts and, and ways to source stories, you know, edit stories and, and get them out there. And that's why we put out a lot of them and we can put them out fast and they're quality, they're quality. But there was a, a council, uh, some meeting of, uh, let's see, it says a crisis of local news is a really harsh reality. This was a, to Canadian media directors at, at a conference uh, recently that was held. And you see, they understand it. And they say the decline of local news outlets is deeply concerning. Uh, not only does it disrupt the lives of journalists and industry professionals, but has far-reaching implications for the communities. And, and there's truth to it. But, I mean, we got to remember, do we need that many outlets anymore? Do we need the local ones? I mean, for those of us old enough to remember pre-internet days, you know, if you were living in a small town or a large city, even the local little baseball team, where else could you find out if they won or lost if you weren't at the game yourself and opening the local paper? Or what was it with that house fire down the street? Or any number of these smaller news items. But now you can still find out. It didn't disappear. It's just the local news outlets did. So uh, you can go on Facebook and you can find these things. You know, you can go on Twitter. I mean, part of the problem, though, and I've said that before, too, we've got more access to quick, ready information than we've ever had in our uh, lives. But at the same time, we've got more access to, to BS as well. So that's where we've got to be really, really careful. And, uh, you know, we got to sift. I mean, some of it puts the responsibility on our laps. So we do have to take that responsibility and uh, just, just make the most of it. But again, I mean, we can't use that as an, an excuse to shore up unsustainable media models. Uh, it's a time of the past. So we've got to evolve and evolve upwards. So, okay, I see my, my guest is getting set over there. Uh, we're going to have her on deck right away. 
And uh, as I said, her name is Gabrielle Bauer. She's a health and medical writer. She's won some awards. She's written a number of books. And uh, we are going to predominantly speak, and I've been looking forward to this, on her recent one on the pandemic and responses to it. It's called Blind Sight is 2020, and it was published by the Brownstone Institute just a few months ago. So uh, let's bring her in and, and uh, have a conversation about this. Uh, there we go. Hello, Ms. Bauer. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. So, I mean, I, I guess I'll get right into it. You know, the, the book is talking about hindsight. It's, I guess, a review. It's looking at what the responses were, how we reacted to the pandemic, how governments reacted, people reacted. And, and I guess maybe if you could kind of sum up in a nutshell what, what, what you're covering in this book. Um, okay. It's a little, I've read a lot of pandemic books as part of my research. This one is a little bit different in that it really focuses on the psychological, sociological dimension. So it's not as much about, you know, data, this factor, that fact, although there certainly are uh, some of those, but it's, um, you know, why did the world go mad? What happened? You know, why was there this level of fear? Why was there this level of groupthink? Uh, why was there this level of shaming and snitching? And where did that all come from? And so in order to make my case, I don't just uh, talk about my own views, but I enlist the expertise of people, 46 people from various disciplines, not just science. And that's really important because I think, you know, novelists and artists and lawyers and philosophers, they all have really important things to say about a pandemic. So I bring together all these people, including scientists, and through them, um, you know, I make the case for some of what happened and why it did. Yeah, and I mean, it was at 46 uh, dissenting thinkers, uh, I believe is what you've got listed in that book who have come out. And, and we can't dismiss the, the people on the grounds, the musicians, the novelists. I mean, with the, they've traditionally been part of our social fabric. They've uh, put out social trends from their, you know, periods of observation historically. And it's, exactly. it's very important to hear what they say, not just the fellow in the lab coat in the, in the back of a room somewhere. And I mean, as you said, it was almost a temporary madness the world went into. Uh, I mean, we'll be studying this for, for a long, long time. But I mean, it, now at least we're allowing some of the voices to come out and even talk about it. I mean, that was part of the trend. Everybody was being shouted down if they uh, swam against the current. I've never, never seen anything like it. I mean, I'm 66 years old now. So I'm old enough to be a grandma, although, although I'm not one yet. And I was 63 when this all started. And so... But I never, you know, even though you'd think I might be in a demographic that wanted to stay home and say, stay safe. No, never. That never made sense to me. And in fact, I could not understand why my friends and colleagues and family were so on board with this. I could not understand it. And it troubled me mightily. And the first few weeks, I tried to sort of understand this and start some conversations online. And the the degree of, of outrage and vitriol I received, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, no one had called me a sociopath before, you know, or a mouth breathing Trump tart or, you know, people telling me to go lick the virus. I mean, it was unbelievably toxic, you know. And, and it was damaging, you know, and, and I mean, I think everybody's sort of seen it. I, I hope some are looking back shamefully, but some rifts haven't been healed. I've seen that within some aspects of more my uh, extended family, a couple of siblings who couldn't talk with each other over the period of this because they were on different sides of the vaccination and masking issue. Like we shouldn't have a, a political issue ripping apart tight family units. Well, it's not a political issue. It shouldn't have turned political. And, and that's something that's interesting, too was the left-right divide. I mean, you'd think this was all just based on health and data, but there was a very distinct uh, split between people who were traditionally, I guess, leaned towards conservative views and people who weren't. Well, yeah, absolutely. But I do want to address one thing you said. You'd think it would all be about the science and data. One of the points that have, has always been important to me and that I make in the book is that managing a pandemic is never just about science and data, no matter which side of the divide you're on. There's always values that go into it you know and in a chapter on um, kids and schools i talk about that how important is it to the society for children to go to school you know there are no formulas to tell us when to close schools and when not to it's always going to be a value judgment i mean data can inform that value judgment but it's never just a question of the science so to speak no matter how good the science is um, so, and yes, as far as the political divide, and that's another issue that I address in the book, you know, about this, this ridiculous left-right thing, um, because traditionally the left has really paid attention to 
um, the working class and the struggles and the need to earn a living and a dignified living and all that stuff. And that completely went out the window. And um, there are so many people like myself that I have met um, through all this that came from perhaps a more left-leaning um, background and, and just got thoroughly disillusioned with the left over the past three years, three years and, and now find ourselves politically homeless. You know, I mean, we, well, we it's kind of appreciate some things from the right, but we still are kind of in this no man's land. And, and, and we disrupted, socially disrupted an entire generation at, at some of their most formative periods. I mean, it, the, the fear and, and, and the division and some of the things impre imprinted upon children when the schools were shut down and so much fear was being spread around. And even when the numbers were coming in, I can understand some panic in the early part of a, a, a crisis. Okay, we don't know how this is going to move. We don't know who it's going to hurt. We really you know, want to act and, and see if we can't get under control. But I mean, after a year, we had a pretty good idea that, thankfully, children were virtually immune from harm from this virus. But even then, we couldn't get them back into the schools. We had hazard tape going around playgrounds. We wouldn't let them get outdoors and socialize. And, and that's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. Yes. And then and to add to that, all the guilt that we lay on them, that was another thing that just really disturbed me from the start is this idea of telling children, well, don't do X, Y, Z or else you might kill grandma. Well, no. I mean, if you inadvertently transmit a virus to someone, you're not killing anyone. You know, of course, we try to be careful and we don't do these things on purpose. But humans and viruses have coexisted since the beginning of time. You cannot make a child feel guilty for inadvertently doing something that is just biology, you know. So I, I found that outrageous. And I think it, that really affected a lot of children. And I'm still hearing about it today where they just, you know, oh, my God, if I take off my mask, who am I going to kill? You know, it's just just crazy stuff. Um, it really was like the world. It's the title of one book that I quote in my own book, The Year the World Went Mad by an epidemiologist, a mainstream epidemiologist. And that is, in fact, what happened. The world went mad, I believe, for three years. Without doubt, and, and rationality went out the window and so many things that we can't take back. You know, we had family members who might be passing away of something that is clearly terminal. Nothing is going to save them. The most important thing in the last period of their lives is to try and see some loved ones one more time before they go. And we kept loved ones out. Who cares if you're going to give them an infection of COVID when they're going to die of cancer in a week? They just exactly. want to somebody's hand one more time. And we exactly. did not do that. It, it just amazed me that that people lost sight of that, you know, and that is a theme that I return to a lot in the book, you know, what is, what are we here for, you know, and what is, um, what do we want in the last moments of our lives? Do we want to be, you know, protected from humanity? Or do we want to reach out and, and, and sort of look over our lives and think and connect and make memories, you know, it, it just, it was such a monolithic response. You know, there's these epidemiologists with with their hammer is just looking for this one nail. And, and that is, you know, probably the central theme in the book is that this is not just an epidemiological problem. It's a human problem that has mental health dimensions, social dimensions, spiritual, philosophical dimensions. And the response just swept all that aside, which really went against all previous pandemic guidance, you know, and that's why I enlist even the the sort of the thoughts of a comedian, some musicians, um, several novelists. I found that novelists often had the deepest insights about the pandemic. You know, obviously they can't advise us on virology or transmission patterns, but they can tell us a lot about sort of the philosophy of, of managing a pandemic and what needs to be done and what shouldn't be done. Well, and, and these things matter. I mean, the distrust in the entire system and, and authority in general. I mean, we were ill-used, or a lot of us certainly feel we were. And if uh, an emergency comes down the road, I imagine there's always another one coming. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people resisting, possibly perhaps resisting on the wrong side, but they've just lost so much trust in the authorities and the establishment that they won't listen to them when, when the time comes that they probably should. Well, that's right. You know, and, and I didn't see any sense of restraint. It was always, you know, great overreach. Um, the, I didn't see any sense of restraint. Oh, well, things are looking better. You know, let's pull back now. Let's talk. Let's bring in some expertise from other areas. Um, and of course, we all know, you know, the whole, the push, the insane push 
toward vaccines as the only solution. Now I'm vaccinated myself, I'm boosted. Like I personally didn't have an issue with the vaccines. I worried about the vaccines as little as I worried about the virus, which might seem strange to some people, but you know, it's how I'm built. So it wasn't an issue for me personally, but as the months went on in 2021, 2022, and I just saw how insane the vax wars became. A lot of us remember that cover spread on the Toronto Star um, with quotes from the people who wanted, you know, the anti-vaxxers to die and go to hell and wanted their children to die. And I mean, like, what is this? That just seemed far, far more harmful to me than any virus, you know? And one thing that I guess I take pride in is that, you know, although I got vaccinated myself, I, I resolved very early on that I was never going to question or shame anyone for their decision because I trust that my friends who decided not to get vaxxed have good reasons for it. And so I never asked them, I never made socializing contingent on it. And it became also clear very soon that the vaccine was not stopping transmission, which really removed any ethical justification for the mandates. Um, so I, I just didn't get into any of that. You know, so many of my friends, are, are you vaccinated? Are you not? You know, and I remember meeting a friend who was not vaccinated and um, we, we were walking outside and she burst out crying in the middle of our walk. I described this episode in the book and she, she just said she was so afraid of meeting me because she thought maybe that I wouldn't want to hang out with her once I found out she wasn't vaccinated. We were outside walking, you know. I just thought, wow. Um, yeah, and then another aspect that turned into a, almost a bizarre measure of, I, I think, to a degree, virtue signaling, maybe began with some medical rationale, but was masking. I, I think part of it's because you wear a mask, you're showing your visible effort that you're trying to stop this, despite the fact that it, it was showing that it wasn't doing a heck of a lot to stop anything, but it was annoying the heck out of people, it was dividing people, and again, it just came down to, I think, a symbolic thing of... Uh, of just showing authority and pushing down on people. Absolutely. And as you say, virtue signaling, and I, and I have to admit, I have a little bit of an allergy to that, you know, the, the, the holier than thou, look at me, I'm a good person, you know, and that was so much a part of this. Um, so I've written quite a lot about masks. Like, you know, if anyone looks on, online, they'll find a lot of my articles about uh, masks. Um, because ultimately, it, my, my most recent, one of my most recent ones was, it's, it's really not even so much about the data. You know, you go on Twitter, and you're going to see these endless arguments. Masks work. No, they don't. Yes, they do. No, they don't. Yes, they do. No, they don't. And both sides just fling data at each other and stats and studies and all that. Underlying all this, I firmly believe and have from the start, is really a difference in worldview. You know, and the side that just believes that protection from a certain threat, from a biological threat trumps everything else in life, that side is going to justify masking. They're going to interpret a 5% reduction as, well, it's worth it, even if it's a 1% reduction, whatever it takes. The side that sees humanity in what I call a more holistic way and sees safety from a biological hazard as only one dimension and who also appreciates human connection and um, in that holistic way is is going to resist the idea of a perma-masked society. And so that's why I've always believed that there are what I call data agnostic arguments behind all this. You know, there's just two sides that see the world a little differently and that want a different kind of world. And, and my book sort of argues for side B, you know, this is the kind of world that we want and this is why. Yeah, and in the battles, unfortunately, are still going on. But I mean, part of what we can hope for, the most we can hope for is that we learn from it and, and correct some of our past actions the next time we hit a challenge. Uh, so, I mean, that's part of, I guess, what you kind of go through and, and come towards in the book. Uh, we've kind of run out of time, but where then, I, I see at the Brownstone Institute, you have plenty of columns there. Where can people find copies of, of Blindsight is 2020 along with, with your other books? Um, well, you can always go on my website, gabriellebauer.com. Uh, and all the information is there. Blindside is 2020. Uh, I mean, Brown, uh, Brownstone Institute is a nonprofit. So the book is available through all Amazon stores on Lulu as well. Um, so it's very easy to find. You just Google the book, Google my name. You can find uh, ways to order the book. If anyone speaks Spanish, um, it has also been published in Spanish by a Madrid publisher. So all that's uh, available on my website and just by Googling my name.
Well, excellent. Well, thank you for, for writing that. We really need to examine what we've done to ourselves and, and try to do better in, in the future. And this, this book's an important part of that. And thank you for coming on today to, to share part of that uh, with us. Uh, well, I thank you. All right. Well, I hope we get the, the chance to talk again soon. I'm certain there'll be more to discuss. Okay. Thanks, Corey. Right, thank you. So that was Gabrielle Brower and uh, or Bauer, I should say. I'm terrible with the reading on there. And the book again is uh, Hindsight or Blindsight is 2020. And uh, again, yes, the, it can be found at uh, brownstone.org. There's there's connections, Amazon, all over. Uh, we really need critical discussion of what happened. We need to look in that rearview mirror and and <laughs> scratch our heads. I, and hopefully, you know, some people are letting some of those shields down a little bit. You know, we've got to watch it too. I, what I've hated the most, what I've despised seeing was the social division. The people who got so upset and fought and haven't talked with each other since. Well, it doesn't matter if the other person wanted you to mask or vaccinate. If you can get over it and start talking again, it's worth it, okay? Let it get behind us. We, we can discuss the other things. We can fight about other stuff later. But seeing lasting damage, seeing family split, seeing friendships lost, social circles broken, you can't measure these things. And that's part of what was important with this book, uh, with, with talking to artists, comedians, people, though, who look, observe the, the social aspects of us because you can't clinically ma you know, measure social damage. It's a, there, there's no easy way to do that. So you can't get a list and see just what happened uh, to that family over there or that sports team or those friends from school. But there was damage, a lot, and, and, and with so little benefit. And, and that's, I think, a lot of what was lost in this whole thing, too. Uh, uh, Gabrielle kind of covered a little of that at the end, talking about, you know, if the masks helped with 1% or 5%, somebody could come up with some data to say it helps. Okay, fine, fair enough, if you're reducing it a little. But everything comes with a cost. And when it comes to cost-benefit analysis, we threw the cost part out the window. There is a cost to wearing a mask. There's the, the, the social aspect. I mean, some of it's just somebody saying, I don't want it on my face. Well, you have to respect a little bit of that. That's important. I myself, and as my wife will re remind folks that I'm supposed to have hearing aids, I don't have good hearing. I've really, during the pandemic, discovered just how much I come to rely on seeing person's lips move when they speak to me. And when they're behind a mask... Uh, I'm asking them to speak up a lot. Now imagine somebody who was fully hearing impaired. What was that three years like for them? For what benefit? To protect them from a 1% or 5%, you know, a, a little less of, of catching again a, a virus, which was definitely real and definitely dangerous, but to most people, not so much that perhaps it was worth the cost of imposing the masks. And the other part that was thrown out was any concept of bodily autonomy or individual choice. You have to respect somebody else's choice, even if you disagree with it. You can even yell at them to disagree, but don't have the state step down and get on them. People got on my case, so I remember that during the show, and it's bad on both sides. I've never hesitated to point out that I got vaccinated twice as well, but I've always supported choice. And yes, I don't see coercion as choice. Because, yeah, there's some people saying, well, you never were forced to. Yeah, no, it's as long as you're willing to lose your job, lose your ability to travel, lose your ability to go to a restaurant, you lose your ability to uh, be on sporting teams, have post-secondary education, it's your choice. That's not a realistic choice for a lot of people. And when we talk about bodily autonomy, and I'll throw in the hand grenade when it comes to it, if it's a, a choice that really, why can't an employer say who has deep-seated feelings uh, about abortion say, well, you know what, I want to have access to the medical records of my employees and any who've participated in abortion, I want the right to fire them. It was a choice and there's consequences, right? Choices have consequences. Now that employer would be brought up on a, in front of a human rights commission so fast your head would spin if they pulled that. I don't, I don't want to see something like that, of course, but that's what I'm talking about, that whole principle is it's very personal. Somebody who strongly, strongly feels that they should not be vaccinated, that's none of the employer's business, particularly once it was clear that it didn't stop transmission. There was no more moral argument anymore. He wasn't going to make coworkers sick by not being vaccinated, wasn't putting anybody at risk. Why do you still have the gun to that person's head? And there's still some places doing that. It's absurd. It's wrong. And I know people are almost sick of hearing of it. They, 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 it was a horrible period of time for everybody. And we don't want to talk about it, but we, we can't forget about it. We can't stop talking about it because, as I said, there's going to be another crisis. There always is. 
So all we can do is hope that we do better in the next one. So let's learn from the last one. What did we do wrong? Let's not repeat those mistakes. We can make a whole bunch of new mistakes when the next crisis comes. But uh, we, we've got to study these things and we can't let them go. All right, I'm going to move on to some other news items to, to cover some things. I, as I said, I can only handle so much COVID talk after so many years. It's so important, but I can only take on so much per uh, se session. Let's sort of lighten things up, but an interesting when it comes to individual choice, this ties in. Uh, we had a, a plebiscite that was held during the Alberta election down in southern Alberta in the town of Cardston. Now, people not familiar with Alberta, we, we have a very strong Mormon population in a lot of those southern towns, Cardston, McGrath, Raymond, uh, predominantly Mormon individuals living down there. And Cardston has not allowed liquor sales for over 100 years in that town. So they finally, yeah, you can't get a drink anywhere. You can't go to a bar. You couldn't get a, a, a go to a liquor store because they could use the, the ability of, uh, you know, local business licenses. So booze wasn't banned, but you had to go elsewhere to get it. You couldn't get anywhere. And uh, it was still close. Uh, uh, 49, 491 people voted, 53% uh, of them, to say, yes, we, we should allow some liquor sales to 441 who voted no. Uh, we'll see. It depends on who's on the town council and whether they'll drag their feet and still allowing and giving licenses. But this, again, comes down to why, guys? Why? It's a legal product. It's a... If you're not into it, your faith says you shouldn't drink it, so on, then don't. But don't use the arm of the law, the state, to stop other people from having that choice. It's ridiculous. And even to this day, it gets too far. Uh, I mean, you know, go door to door. We know the, 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 the Latter-day Saints certainly have no shyness about that. Try to create converts and, and get people to choose not to drink. I'm not one who's saying uh, that, uh, you know, excess booze use and then liquor is a good idea. I've had my challenges with alcohol. I haven't had a drink in years, but it's not good for everybody, that's for sure. But I don't begrudge somebody else from responsibly enjoying it. If, if you can go out and enjoy a drink or a few or even, you know, go, go on a bender now and then have some fun with it, go to town responsibly. It's not for me, that's all. But we as a society, we've got to get better at that, don't we? got to get better being able to say, I'm not into this. This other person's into this. I just won't do it with them. I'm okay with it, though. I don't have to stop them. I don't have to intervene on them. It gets back to the libertarian principles. If it's not hurting somebody else, stay out of it, particularly the state. Particularly the state. Now, some people, and fair enough, I'm going to go on one of my uh, side trackings because that's what I do. When we talk about decriminalization of hard drugs, Fair enough. You know, if you're saying that that way, Corey, why, why are you on the case of it, uh, you know, so much uh, as it's happening in Vancouver? Well, that's a fair question. Very much a fair one. Uh, part of the problem, and I, I do believe to a degree in decriminalizing, going after the ground level consumers of drugs, even the hard ones, what point? What, what point in arresting and fining a heroin or a, a fentanyl junkie that has no money, that are really at bottom already, and uh, going after them, you're not doing them any good. You're not doing the state any good. You're not stopping the dealers. You're not uh, stopping the mayhem that the drugs are causing. The problem I have is with the enablement, with the uh, trying to say that you can functionally live and exist on drugs. Because drugs, those drugs aren't directly comparable to alcohol. Now, alcohol, as I know, can be very, very dangerous. It can be abused. It's ruined millions and millions of lives for some people who can't responsibly consume it. But there's no responsible way to be a recreational consumer of fentanyl. Way too powerful, way too addictive, way too damaging. There is no safe amount of methamphetamines you can take. Meth is not safe. Now, you know, Putting a rail to blow up your nose is never a good, healthy idea. Should it be illegalized, though? I, you know, that's not necessarily the route to deal with it. But what we need is treatment. What we need is intervention. And that's, that gets into another area that, uh, you know, people could say is a double standard. I've talked about that. We need to, when people have hit that point, I mean, we, we do have that. And I talked about it with a family member I had to deal with recently. When a person is clearly in a position where they may harm themselves or others, we can intervene, and that's typically that's under the Mental Health Act. Every province has one. When a person is taking fentanyl to the point that they're scrawny and have sores all over them and have lost bowel control and are passing out behind dumpsters, I don't think it should be that hard to be making the case that they're going to harm themselves if we just leave them as they are. 
It's one of those rare cases where infringing on individual liberty, I think, is a social obligation on our part. We have to be careful with it. You don't uh, you don't want to do it frivolously, but we can see enough of the zombies on the streets. Those are somebody's children's cousins, brothers, sisters. I mean, somebody put it in the most crude of ways in some of the online discussions with some saying, you can't take their liberty. What if it's your daughter out there who's servicing men to get her next fix? Would you as a family member want some sort of intervention to get her off there, even if treatment is difficult and doesn't have the highest success rate, you know that leaving it on the streets has pretty much a zero success rate. Wouldn't you want to intervene? If it's your son who's out there who's putting his life at risk, stealing from people to get his next fix, you know, pacing up and down the roads, begging on street corners. So, yes, yes, we, that's compassionate conservatism. We've got to be careful with it. Uh, you know, and others have pointed out, yes, the, these addicts aren't, they don't have personal liberty. They don't have freedom. They are slaves to the addiction. They're slaves to the drugs. They don't have the liberty already. So this is a, one of the things I'm very excited about with Premier Smith, because she didn't back down on that. And that's part of what I said at the start of it. When she was talking about bringing in treatment systems where we're going to directly intervene and get them in. And I've seen some experts and others are saying, oh, there's only a 20% success rate if you force treatment, 50% if they come in willingly. The bottom line is treatment's essential. When you're in the late stages of addiction, not just trying it out, when you're one of those, again, when you're on the streets, when you're a meth addict, a fentanyl addict, a heroin addict, your odds of surviving without treatment are very, very low. So even 20% is a hell of a lot better than what you had. And I want to try it. People point to Portugal. Look at them. They've decriminalized the drugs and everything. Yes, they have, but they overlook the other part. Portugal has a very, very advanced, and I would say, yes, almost coercive treatment system. You want to get in and uh, get access to some of that clean supply. Yes, but they also say this is also the first step on your road to getting treatment and getting off the crap. It's not saying you can live and just keep consuming it. It's a, a disease that needs to be treated, not something that needs to be enabled. So, uh, you know, as, as others have been pointing out with the, the Aaron Gunn's uh, documentary, Canada is Dying. Yes, I think it's well worth watching. And we have our own Arthur Green, who's always putting pictures up of addicts in, in rough states and in difficulty on the streets. And people get upset with that. And, and they should. That's the point. We want you to get upset. But it's not just to get you upset. It's make people realize how ugly it's getting out there, how bad it is, how much worse it is. Because most people don't go downtown. Most people don't ride public transit. So most people don't understand just how awful it's gotten. And this is happening in every city and also in the smaller towns and areas across the entire country. Fentanyl, it's like something we've never seen before. It's so much it's it's prevalent it's relatively cheap it's incredibly powerful very very dangerous and uh, we didn't have to deal with that you know in the, in the 80s the 90s we we had addicts you had your drunkards you always had that part of town but you didn't have this wave of zombies that's killing people like this and we have to do something about it enabling isn't working and again you know it just gets down to responsible or not it's not a good uh uh recreational drug when i uh as many pointed out shared too much when talking about my colonoscopy for example well part of what they gave me is the mix to uh, knock it out to make it a, a less unpleasant experience was fentanyl there is a medical use for it but it doesn't mean that uh, a person is uh, can take it themselves in a safe manner in any sort of way and it certainly gave me an impression of just how powerful that stuff is because yeah you know the little bit injected into me and i barely remembered anything and they're wheeling me out of the room a little more humbled and uh, a little tender in the, the backside, but uh, no worse for wear. All right. Well, enough of that. Let's uh, get, turn the page onto something quite different and uh, talk to Jim Buzicum of Marketplace Commodities and uh, get some updates on things. Uh, we're starting to see a drought starting to intensify and people are starting to get concerned. Uh, uh, before the last time I talked to Jim, uh, Jim, there you are. You were saying, you know, uh, Producers shouldn't be sweating the weather patterns quite yet, but now it's a, is it starting to entrench a bit? Yeah, so we're roughly about one month into the North America growing season. That's both here in Western Canada and uh, most of the United States. So while some areas have been getting more or less regular precipitation, we've also seen areas like southern Alberta, eastern side of Alberta, um, you know, actually 
become drier. The conditions when they were planting the crops was good. Um, they had, you know, plenty of moisture to germinate the crops. But now that those crops are growing, they require more moisture to uh, mature properly to produce the the seeds. And um, yeah, we're starting to hear some rumbles about. Uh, you know, production issues if this weather keeps up the way it is. So it's very common. I mean, we do go through most growing seasons where it's, uh, there's always imperfections, there's always issues, and uh, these things affect the markets. So um, what we have seen, though, is that we had really high prices in 21, 22, and even the start of 23, and these markets are actually continuing to go down. So one might ask, well, what's going on? Like usually if you have a drought situation and you have potential production issues, you should actually see prices start to react to that and go up. Well, I think the issue is today it's still too localized. The trade, as you might want to call it, or those that are speculating on the markets are saying, look, we're not, we're not buying it yet. It's still too small of a drought. Um, so it, it depends what happens for sure as we go into the next two weeks. By the middle of June, it'll it'll set some ground as to where it's going to be. Yeah. So, I mean, a producer, of course, can't control the weather, but but I guess watching those trends can really impact how a producer, uh, what, what they're going to produce or, or plan for or seed or, uh, I guess, in finances. Yeah. So I, I think what a producer needs to do in this situation is, uh, understand that there's two markets out there. So the futures market is more forward thinking. It sees the overall whole market, not just your localized area or even one province. It sees basically all of Western Canada. It really sees the whole world. And at any given time when that market is open, whatever the bias is of that moment, that is priced into the market. Whereas in the cash markets, where we're buying from a farmer, selling to a feedlot as a just the easiest example. Um, you may have a bias on that market, but I think we tend to forget that that's priced in almost immediately. That's how efficient the market is. It prices in the bullish news, the bearish news right away. So that's where it's at today. All right. Well, thanks for the update. It's appreciated. And uh, we'll talk again soon then, Jim. Thanks. Thanks, Corey. You take care. Hey, thanks. So that is Jim Buzikum of Marketplace Commodities. Yes, of producers. I mean, it is uh, the old days of a, a small uh, facility in production are, are gone. You know, it's, it takes a lot of skill, business planning, and uh, work to make sure that you can maximize what you're doing. So check them out at uh, marketplacecommodities.com. And uh, there's, there's certainly a lot they can offer there in, the, in what's obviously a, a fluid sort of market and, and uh, business world. All right. Well, let's see what else we're going to get on to. Uh, you know, I'm going to drop the bomb. I expect you to go to, to the Western Standard to get the details, of course. But Dave talked about that. Who was this celebrity at 83 who has knocked up a young lady? It's Al Pacino. And uh, yes, uh, his 28-year-old girlfriend is eight months pregnant. I guess he's kept it secret for quite some time. So, uh, you know, speaking of some of the advantages of pharmaceuticals, I very much doubt that uh, Mr. Pacino at that point, but who knows, maybe he's got some super virility, uh, managed to pull that off without some sort of blue pill or, or something along the lines. And, uh, you know, it's, it's along with his friend there, uh, De Niro, I think he's 79, and he's got uh, his young girlfriend with a bun in the oven as well. I'm sort of mixed with that, especially guys like De Niro likes taking the, the big compassionate left-wing caring thing and so on and how the rest of us are, are all uncaring jerks. Well, whilst he's uh, out there at, you know, the age of pushing 80 and producing children, you know, good on you, I guess, if you're getting the young ladies at that age. But how fair is it to the kid when your father, uh, if they manage to live until your graduation is going to be pushing 100, there's not going to be playing any ball in the backyard or, uh, you know, experiencing much. Uh, uh, we've already got a society that's already suffering a lot from, from families that uh, don't necessarily have parents. I mean, I guess these guys will certainly be able to pay the bills for them, but will they be able to present themselves as, as the father figures? You know, maybe uh, just add a little to that blue pill and then uh, throw a little something on the tip of that old thing before uh, making more kids, guys. But uh, whatever, it's their business, their bodies, their choices. And uh, 
that's uh, what those fellas did. I like uh, Lisa Webster. Say hello to my little offspring. Ah, nice. Uh, so, yes, if uh, folks remember uh, Scarface, that uh, is a play on, on that uh, portion there uh, from that movie. Okay, so uh, let's see what else we've got going on. It's not too, too much to cover. There's a lot more that I can't get into because it's just too big. We can't forget it's getting bigger and bigger with O'Toole now, the leader of the opposition. It's been concerned. Uh, confirmed that it seems that the the Chinese Communist Party was most stuff we already knew in a sense directly trying to interfere make him lose the election uh, again Trudeau and his uh, little lapdog Johnson are trying to whitewash this and cover it up we just couldn't talk enough about it uh, with what's left in the show today I'll work on that a little more next week because this is a huge issue in Canada a massive one we can't let it get forgotten over the summer course there'll be lots more to cover and uh, updates and things next week as well so thank you all for tuning in today guys and uh yeah we can finally start talking about stuff other than the provincial election for a while but i'll still be a bunch of politics and me ranting and raving in future shows so come in again next week at this time and we will do it all over again thanks here's an update on commodity prices in leopard for today cash barley is down two dollars at 403 Feed wheat is down $2 at $4.04, and corn is down $3 at $3.93 per metric ton. In the milling wheat markets, July Minneapolis futures are lower 11 and 3 quarter cents at $7.81 per bushel, with local hard red spring bid for May movement at $10.47. Looking at canola, nearby futures dropped $7.60 at $6.50.60 per ton, with delivered values per June movement at $14.97 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are trading at 33 cents per pound, and yellow peas are holding at 11.25 per bushel. And in the cattle markets, August live cattle added 17.5 cents at 167.35 per hundred weight. For more information on pricing or picked up options, give me a call at 403-394-1711. I'm Matt Musicum at Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines uh, helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada. And more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.